Turn to Revelation chapter 16. I will say, it does feel a little bit like I'm cheating preaching Revelation with the coronavirus panic outside. But Lord's perfect wisdom, he knew a long time ago what we'd be talking about today. All right, Revelation chapter 16, a hard chapter. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and was, for you you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, great earthquakes, such as there had never been seen since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. 
And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, your word is perfect. We are not. We are the flaw in the equation, so we ask that your mighty spirit would give life and light to our hearts, that our understanding would increase, that our faith would increase, our love would increase, and our hope would increase, and namely because Christ would increase in us. We pray in his name, amen. You just had to be there, right? That right there is, uh, I think, perhaps the single most effective sentence to kill a story, right? You've been trying to tell whatever you're excited about, trying to explain it to your friends and your loved ones, and they kind of give you the, and then somebody says, well, I guess you just had to be there, which we all understand exactly what that means, don't we? Yeah, I'm not understanding what you're saying. Well, I mean, I understand the words, but I I don't get the significance at all of what you're talking about. Maybe I'm bored. Maybe I don't care. You just had to be there. And I've probably heard that said to me far more than most, as uh, it was, I guess, probably one of the great refrains of my college and then into seminary career. Um, I've spent more time thinking about it than most, and I think probably the reason why we have stories that work that way, stories that we end up with a kind of, you just had to be there to understand it, is because not of an inability to convey the facts of the story, but instead an inability to convey the scale of the story. Got a classic example. Right, somebody, you, you get together with them, you know them, you love them, you're invested in their life, they're invested in yours, and they begin to tell you the most adorable story about how their granddaughter or their niece or their neighbor's daughter did this really silly dance for you and made you laugh and it just made your day. And that's great and all, but it's really hard to convey just how funny that dance was. And so instead, you end up with this kind of awkward moment where you're going, oh, well, I guess you just had to be there because I don't understand. It's hard to convey the sense of scale correctly. I would contend, actually, that's really what's happening in our current uh, panic crisis with the coronavirus in the background is, is it's really difficult to figure out how to convey scale, how to show how big something is and how small something is, how to help your brain process exactly how large something is. Again, it's the, the challenge when you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. It's so big, your brain is just like, I don't even get this. I don't understand what's going on. It makes no sense. It's huge. 
in any sort of conversation about God's wrath and about the end of time and about God's judgment is the same sort of thing. We understand that it's bad. We get that. We understand that it's the end. We get that. But both of those things are things like me telling you about my niece doing a silly dance or your neighbor's child doing a silly dance and you trying to tell me. Those are facts that we can understand. But to get the sense of scale and perspective is difficult. Usually you have to kind of anchor it within other kind of things in relationship to it to see how big it is. Jesus and John in the book of Revelation do something very different, in fact. Part of what they do to convey a sense of scale is to tell the same story over and over and over again to help you kind of get familiar with the story, but they change the terms of it just a little bit every time. The seven bowls of God's wrath, if you were paying attention, parts of it would have sounded fairly familiar And I would say, very good, you're correct, because it's the same thing that has already been told in seven trumpets and in seven seals. I mean, it's almost identical, but not quite, even to the point where it follows the 4-2-1 scheme, all three of them do, where it tells four plagues that are uh, inherently connected, two that are inherently connected, and then number seven, which is of a completely different category. We watched it happen with the four horsemen of the apocalypse at chapter 6. With the seven seals, we've watched it happen just previous page in your Bible, really, uh, with uh, the seven trumpets there happening in chapters 9, 10, and 11. But something different happens in this one. And again, I think what God is doing and John is doing and Jesus is doing is to try to help the reader understand a sense of scale. You see, the first four plagues, all connected here, uh, highlight one primary kind of idea. It's God's judgment inside the created order. It's God's judgment inside kind of almost the normalcy of life initially. And the first time it's told, it's told within the context of natural disaster. And it's told within the context of natural disasters that they themselves would have either experienced or heard about. Chapter 6, it was told in the context of volcanoes and earthquakes and things that they themselves might have experienced. It's told within the context of the created order, displaying God's mighty victory over the created order and through the created order. Here, though, in chapter 16, uh, taking an old reference, the knob is turned up to 11, and it suddenly gets a bit more intense. It begins with a loud voice coming from the temple, God the Father speaking, telling his seven angels to go and to pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This wrath is the completion of his wrath. It's the totality of his wrath. It's what's been hinted at throughout the entirety of the book. 
So the first angel arrives and pours out his bowl on the earth. And again, uh, the idea here being different than a trumpet or being different than a seal is uh, when bowls were poured out, when drink offerings were poured out in the Old Testament. I say this often with the communion is the significance with those is there's nothing left. When you pour out a drink offering, there's no drink left. It's not like some of it is reserved for later. You you give the entirety of the offering. It's why when Jesus drinks the cup of the wrath of God, he drinks it all the way to its dregs. There's there's nothing left. It's why when we drink the cup of blessing, God gives it all to us. It's significant here. These bowls of God's wrath are being poured out. They're being poured out upon the created order. Uh, Verse 2, it's harmful and painful sores come upon the people. And suddenly now, this is actually where we begin to see the intensification take place. The previous two tellings of this have explained that it's God's wrath being poured out on the created order. And it's hinted at a bit... Those that are receiving it, here it's explicitly explained. Those that are suffering God's wrath are those that belong to the beast. They have the mark of the beast. They are the ones worshiping the beast. They're the ones that are opposed to God. Remembering that the entirety of the book is framed out with those that have the mark of the lamb or those that have the mark of the beast. It's all of God's enemies. It's all of the people who are opposed to him. The second kind of major change we see takes place in verse 3 with the the second bowl of wrath. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. So the sea probably coagulated in some fashion. Yeah, nasty. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, if you were to go back and match the seven seals and the seven trumpets previously, they follow the same pattern. Dealing with earth dealing with water, dealing with the sky, following the same pattern. But interestingly, you get to see the level of devastation start small and then builds to a third and then now here builds to totality. It's trying to help us to get a sense of scale. It's trying to help us wrap our mind around how big something is. I have a friend who talking with her years ago, uh, she's a missionary, she said, we were talking about a gathering of people, and so how many people were there? And she was like, I, I have no idea. I said, well, give me, a, were there 25 people there? Were 1,000 people there? How many were there? And she was like, I don't understand. No, you don't, you don't get how my brain works. My brain is unable to conceptualize numbers larger than 25. So the difference between 30 and 300 to my eye is no different. When you ask me how many people were there, I can't tell you a number because I can't wrap my mind around how big it is. Oh, okay. Well, now let's start some diagnostic questions. How many rows were in the building that you were in of chairs? I don't know. It's more than 25. Okay, that helps me. We can go from there. Start, you have to get at it a different way. That's what's happening here is God's getting at it a different way because we can't wrap our minds around how bad it is. So first, what does he do is he strikes the earth to take away the health from people because we all know, my goodness, watch the news. When people are afraid of losing their health, they go crazy. 
Then, secondly, he takes away the entirety of the sea, the food source, all that that would be. Third, in a great kind of reminiscing of the plagues in Egypt, he turns all the fresh water to blood. So you've lost the food supply of the sea, you've lost the water supply of the fresh water, and everyone is in the world of hurt. And this would be the point where, again, if you're, if you're thinking in terms of these scale, you're realizing at this point, no one gets spared. No one gets spared. Right? The sweet little old lady who lives uh, four doors down from you that makes cookies for everybody in the neighborhood and takes care of the neighborhood kids and sends you neat little, you know, uh, crocheted things when you're sick or whatever. If she doesn't know Jesus, she doesn't get spared. Your grandmother that took such good care of you when you were a kid, if she doesn't know Jesus, she doesn't get spared. That sibling, if they don't know Jesus, they don't get spared. And honestly, this is where it starts getting hard because we as humans love to have the loopholes. We love to have this idea of God's wrath, but to reserve it in our mind for only the truly bad people. Hitler gets this. Stalin gets this. Pol Pot gets this. But not us. Not, not people like in America. We don't have villains like this anymore. We don't have these hyperboles of evil anymore. We don't have these wicked people. And here, no, actually what John's getting at and Jesus is getting at in, in chapter 16 is the totality of this judgment. No one gets out of it, apart from Christ. Now, I think if you're kind of reading through and engaging the material, uh, once the the sea is taken away, once the fresh water is taken away, you realize at that point everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. Once once the the life-giving things are removed, now it's just a matter of time. And dying of dehydration is a terrible way to die. And that would be the point that if you're reading through, you would push back and say, well, this isn't fair. I don't like it. Which is interestingly exactly where the angel begins to chime in. And explains, oh no. (laughs) Oh, little man, (laughs) you who want to run your mouth. No, instead, let's think of this. Just are you, oh, holy one. Just is God. The one who is and was, interestingly, it takes away the one who will be because this is the end. It puts it in the past and, and present tense because this is, this is it. There's no future into to time anymore. This is the end. You've brought these judgments. You are the one who is destroying all of the world. You're the one who is destroying all the people. It's God that's doing it. And because we know God is doing it, we know it's good. We know it's holy because God is good and God is holy. And he explains further, this angel does, these people, these ones being the recipients of your wrath, they are not innocents. They're not bystanders, using uh, war language. They're not non-combatants. These aren't just innocent people who happen to be collateral damage in the end time. 
These are the ones that though they may have seemed so nice on the outside, in their inner heart, hating the people of God, they were actively shedding the blood of the saints and prophets inside. And the consequences, the wrath they're getting is what they deserve. It's important to highlight that, you know, apart from Christ, none none dodge this. Apart from Christ, we don't dodge this. We don't deserve the, the forgiveness that we've been given. Instead, what it's highlighting is this internal condition of those that do not have the Spirit working inside them. They pour out hate and wrath and evil that deserves God's judgment. And I heard from the altar, Jesus then comments, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Which is a marvelous thing to think about. The Lord Jesus rising up and defending his people because God is accomplishing his judgment and his victory. It's even more marvelous if you think about it that Jesus was the recipient of that judgment. The only one who actually at this point has undergone God's wrath and survived, he died but was raised, he's saying true and just. You're right. This is what sin deserves. And again, in kind of putting it in scale that our brains can understand, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. No, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it had to have been a, a sight to see. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. I'm assuming it's something very similar to like if, uh, if the magnetic field of the earth were stripped away. This is, we were talking about this actually Thursday night Bible study the other week. If the earth stopped rotating, it would stop our magnetic field. The magnetic field of the earth is what provides the shield that cushions us from all of the radiation coming from the sun. If the earth stopped rotating, everybody on that side of the earth would be instantly killed from the radiation of the sun. It would just consume them because the atmosphere wouldn't be there and the magnetic field wouldn't be there to stop it. I assume it's something like that. That as God's wrath is poured out on the sun, the sun pours forth just radiation and heat and and destroys these people. And interestingly, even as it's happening, this again shows the heart condition. Even as it's happening, they cursed the name of God. They did not repent and give him glory. And again, with, the, uh, with the, the seven seals, with the seven trumpets, now with the seven bowls, the first four plagues follow the same pattern of interacting with the creative order. And weirdly enough, even amazingly enough, they interact with the creative order in the, same, the actual same, same four steps. And I'd love to highlight, just kind of call our attention to that fact, is part of what this is showing is for the end times, for Christians to think about The Lord accomplishes his victory through the created order, not in spite of it. Meaning, when he goes to accomplish his perfect purposes, he's accomplishing it through creation, not in spite of creation. And and you think, well, Michael, that is a weird point to be making. I mean, why? Who cares? Well, it's not a weird point to be making if you actually think about the coronavirus outside. 
to think about how many people in our current world are just absolutely terrified. Don't know what they're doing, petrified, afraid of getting an illness, afraid of what might happen if they do get that illness, afraid. And for Christians, it's like, no, 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 time out, time out, time out. The Lord accomplishes his perfect purposes through the created order, not in spite of it. The coronavirus is not an enemy that has gotten out of hand that God can no longer keep in check. And it's not like yesterday where my dog got outside when I wasn't paying attention and decided he was going to have the run of the street. Oh, no. Now I can't get the dog back. Right? I have to go call him, yell at him. He doesn't listen. He goes running off until the neighbors catch him and bring him back. That's not how it happens with the coronavirus. God let it out for a little bit. Oh, no. Look, the coronavirus is too big. Come back. Come back. And God's sitting there twiddling his thumbs until the neighbors catch it. It's important for us as Christians to be reminded that God, he is accomplishing his victory through creation. He's accomplishing his victory through the coronavirus. He's accomplishing his victory for Christ Ridge Presbyterian Church through the rain this winter. I don't know how. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven. Can't wait to study the history of what else he was doing with all that water. And the result of this is, as God's people, is we should be the most fearless people on the planet. Because the God who loved us, the God who has pledged himself to us, the God who has adopted us, the God who has pledged to us an inheritance, the God who has pledged to us life eternal with him, has said he will use this created order for our good. coronavirus. It's for our good. I don't know how. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him. Can't wait to study the history to see when I get there. Wonder what all he's doing. Put more sharply, the the created order is the arena that his victory is displayed. Ooh, I have to go fast for communion. Four plagues always connected. The next two are connected. And here it highlights a bit of a transition where it moves from judgment dealing with the people opposed to God to judgment uh, displayed or or given to, administered to uh, the devil. Not just now the human creations, but now these uh, demonic creations, angels that have fallen in uh, 5 and 6, where 5, what happens? The fifth angel, uh, verse 10, the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Remembering the beast is this probably kind of antichrist figure. It's what the devil is using uh, as his, um, uh, his, his kind of puppet in front of the masses. Remembering the devil's tactics are are far too subtle. He does not uh, vote for himself, so to speak. He's not running himself for president. He's running a minion that nobody will be as offended by. Uh, They'll be able to worship that and and feel more comfortable with that. Instead, he'll work from behind the scenes. Here in the fifth plague, God's wrath is poured out on that beast. It's poured out on that beast's kingdom. And darkness falls again. 
recapitulation of the ten plagues. And again, what's the consequence of those that are connected to this beast are so upset and so angry and so scared and terrified and filled with hate and wrath and uh, just miserable. People gnaw their own tongues off in anguish. But interestingly, even as they're doing that, verse 11, they're cursing the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They don't repent. As this great turmoil and terror and uh, difficulty is poured out on them by the holy God, rather than bow the knee, they continue to fight against him. And part of that is, if you remember the way the book is structured, in chapter 14, it's already presented so clearly that God's people are safe with Jesus. When the wrath is poured out, it's not poured out on us. We don't, we don't get wrath anymore. It was poured out on us on the cross. It's not poured out on us in the judgment. In verse 12, the sixth angel pours out his on the great river Euphrates and the water is dried up so that uh, the great battle can take place. So that the great enemies of God, you have the dragon and he has these weird frog demons come out, which again, frogs were unclean, they're disgusting, they're nasty creatures. Uh, unless you, you, know, you like the frog and the princess story, sorry, then they're adorable. But uh, in the context of the Bible, they're these gross, unclean, disgusting creatures. Um, and the, the image here presented uh, is the great armies gathering. The great battle, the, the, the devil is there. The lingering remnants of his army that haven't been destroyed with the beast and all of the consequences there. He pulls out some more of his uh, demonic captains and they all gather at Armageddon. Armageddon is uh, complicated, (laughs) far more complicated. I give you a whole Sunday school on just that word alone. Uh, It is actually a textual variant, which means some of the texts that we have say the word Armageddon. Some of the texts that we say have one little apostrophe at the beginning, which would turn it to Harmageddon with an H at the front. And you think the difference between Armageddon and Harmageddon is not that big of a deal, except for it says the place in Hebrew is called. And in Hebrew, that's a really big deal. Because at one point, it means the plains of Megiddo, which is where God displays his victory with Barak and, and Judges. And the other is the mountains of Megiddo, which we have no idea what they mean. The whole idea captured in both of them. It's not a literal place. What instead it is, is it's the location of the final battle where God displays his mighty victory to his people. First four plagues showcase God's victory in creation in the created order. The next two plagues show God's victory over the forces of evil. He defeats the devil and his minions. And just as that first four plagues kind of challenge God's people to uh, live without fear, to accept the love of God and to to live as free people kind of out in the world being Christ to the nations here. Interestingly, I think John even gives us the application there in verse 14, 15. Look, by the way, (laughs) yeah, yeah, this day's coming quick. It's coming like a thief in the night. You need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You need to be ready for the end because you don't know when it will come. I honestly think that's part of the hubbub about the coronavirus. Is that a nation, a world that's suddenly being confronted with the reality of death in a way that it hasn't before? 
is freaking out. Now, to put it again, and it's a sense of scale, you realize all of the people worldwide that have been reported to die from the coronavirus is less than the number of abortions in America on Friday. Not Thursday and Friday, just Friday. We abort more babies every day than we've had die from the coronavirus. Put that in perspective, please. But there's a sense of here of being ready. Don't let the end times catch us unaware. And I think sometimes we live every day with the presumption that the world is going to continue this way forever. And that's actually what gets captured in the seventh plague on all of these. It's a four, two, and one. Remember, four created order, two dealing with spiritual order. One is an unmaking of the created order. It's, it's the dissolving of the world. It's the, the removal of all things the way they've been, which is why it gets described this way. It's done. It's finished. God's wrath is completed. The created order is getting it all. Here, it's flashes of lightning. The earth is being torn apart. Rumblings, uh, an earthquake like we've never seen before, uh, even to the point where you at the end have hailstones of 100 pounds each. I'll pass on that. Thank you. Um, But in verse 19, with the idea of the great city of Babylon being torn apart, that the enemies of God are completely destroyed. And I would end with this very quick challenge before we go to communion. Plagues 1 through 4, bowls of wrath 1 through 4, highlight God's victory through the created order, which I think should give us a sense of fearlessness as we live in light of God's word and his promises. Uh, God's victory over the forces of evil are displayed in the next two, which should give us a sense of of readiness to to fight the good fight, to be ready for the end. Uh, The last one, though, I think is an important thing for Christians, and it's something that I think uh, is probably one of those things the American church does not do well, and that is to say to to treat the created order with an open hand. And by that I mean we, we do such a good job here of clinging to our stuff. Of clinging to our lives, of clinging to flesh and blood, of clinging to matter, of clinging to our savings accounts, of clinging to our 401k, think about this week. Instead of just treating the life that God has given with an open hand. And saying, I belong to you. I'm your child. I take care of my kids, albeit a little bit, just because I'm a fallen human father. God takes care of me perfectly because he's a divine father. I don't need to worry. I don't have to value my life like it's the, the only thing in existence because worst case scenario, I lose it. And guess what? The great promotion. Passing to the life to come. We have the great privilege of living as free people and living with an open hand because Jesus has already satisfied our wrath. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this gives us comfort and peace. And we ask, oh God, that you would give us faith. For Christ's sake, amen.